This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. This episode of the ETRBR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month we're highlighting Emma Turner's new book, Simplicitas Altius, leading the interconnected primary curriculum. Simplicitas Altius is the companion book to Simplicitas, the interconnected primary curriculum and effective subject leadership. Building on the initial ideas from Simplicitas, this book now explores further challenges in effective curriculum design with primary, including reading and its place in curriculum design, child development and movement, how to get started with writing your curriculum, how to produce usable, useful and workable documentation, planning for mixed age classes and a complete evaluation section to get to the heart of your curriculum offer. With a special code of ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. That includes Simplicitas Altius, as well as my two books, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30 on the John Cat website or the Woods Lane website here in Australia. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic Education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ETRBLOB podcast, to realise a bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra, including their professional development that they're running, the way that they're engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and to even explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 79 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. This episode, we're speaking with Daniel Willingham. Daniel is a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, where he has taught since 1992. He writes the popular Ask a Cognitive Scientist column for American Educator magazine and is the author of several books, including Why Don't Students Like School? and, most recently, Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy, which is the topic of today's podcast. His writing on education has appeared in 19 languages, and in 2017, he was appointed by President Obama to serve as a member of the National Board of Education Sciences. Dan has been on the podcast before, back in episode 25 on the topic of When Can We Trust the Experts, which is an episode that I absolutely loved. Dan's Why Don't Students Like School is also the first book that introduced me to the simple model of memory, the environment, working memory, and long-term memory that's provided the bedrock for my whole understanding of what it takes to learn and therefore teach ever since then. And in his recent book, Outsmart Your Brain, Dan has done it again. He's produced yet another incredibly valuable and practical guide. This time, that guide is for anyone who wants to learn how to be a better learner. I have a feeling that you're going to love this episode, and it's even one that you might like to share with your students too, because the advice is directed at learners just as much as it is at teachers. 
If you're keen for a weekly injection of educational insight, stimulation, and resources, then why not sign up to my weekly education email? Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the week, wrapped up in one easy to digest and a short email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up, go to ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. That's ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 79 of the ERRR podcast with Daniel Willingham. Daniel Willingham, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks so much, Ollie. Happy to be here. Dan, to start off with, why do students need to learn to outsmart their brains? One of the things that prompted me to write the book was the realization that, at least in American schools, and I suspect in many schools around the, uh, in countries around the globe, we have increasing expectations as students get older regarding their ability to regulate their own learning. So appropriately, when children are four and, and enter preschool, the expectation is that whether they learn or not is completely up to the teacher. And we don't, we don't think that they should sort of know what to do to help ensure that they learn. But by the time they graduate from high school, the expectations are quite high about their ability to regulate their own learning. We think they should know how to commit things to memory. They should be able to know when they have committed something to memory. They should be able to learn from complicated teacher talk. They should be resourceful in reading complicated texts. If they don't understand, they should know what to do about it and so on. At least in the States, they're not taught to do any of that. And we know that from surveys of college students, because one of the questions that is posed to students uh, in those surveys is how, well, first you ask why, you know, how do you study? What do you do when you're preparing for an examination? And then second, how do, why do you do it that way? Who taught you to do it that way? And in most surveys, the overwhelming response is nobody. I just sort of figured it out or I watch YouTube videos or something like that. So now to get to your, this is all sort of backdrop for your question. Your question was, why do students need to outsmart their brain? Uh, because they're not instructed in how to regulate their own learning and are sort of figuring it out on their own, they're very much using cues to judge whether or not they are being successful as they learn. And uh, we don't have direct access to know whether or not you've really learned something, to know whether learning is going well or poorly. So instead, you, you end up using proxies. And some of the proxies that students use are misleading. And so this is why, even though, as I mentioned a moment ago, even though no, students aren't generally taught how to study, there's a lot of uniformity in the methods that they use. And they all use the same methods, or they, they sort of gravitate towards. Some of it, of course, is social contagion. But I think they all end up landing on the same methods in part because they use methods that feel like they're effective and also don't feel very difficult. So they've basically got to learn to override these natural, either natural or kind of societally learnt proxies for learning or, or the way the judgments of learning is another term in the research uh, and come to learn 
more reliable, I guess, come to rely upon more reliable judgments of learning to work out whether they've actually learned things or not. And so within your book, I guess you're trying to lay out a whole toolkit for students to have more effective judgments of learning, but also more effective learning processes. That's exactly right. Yeah, well put. One thing I'm wondering about, or one one of the phrases in your book that it was interesting, uh, that's probably a bit counterintuitive to a lot of people because often motivation, we think of motivation is so important to learning, is the phrase, wanting to learn has no direct impact on learning. Could you unpack this a little bit for listeners? Sure. I mean, that, and it, it's very much in line with what we were just talking about, that you don't have direct access to products of learning in some cases, and you don't have direct control over mechanisms of learning. So there's some things that this feeling of conscious will goes very very reliably associated and therefore feels effective with certain types of behavior. So if I want to raise my arm, I sort of think to myself, I want my arm to go up now. And it feels like that's, that's under my control. I can raise my arm. Thinking I want this to be committed to memory now does nothing. And the only way that motivation can help is indirectly. You can, so in other words, there are some things that are under your control and you can kind of get yourself to do. And there's some things that you can't. Memory is one of the ones you can't. And so what you need to do is find something that is under your control where doing that thing will have learning as a byproduct. There are certain mental tasks that you can set for yourself and you will actually perform those mental tasks. So, you know, for example, if I suggested that you mentally rehearse the times tables, you can do that. But giving you a list of phone numbers and saying, here, I want you to commit these to memory, you looking at them and thinking, now I'm memorizing them is, is not going to do anything. That's really powerful. Uh, so to kind of repeat something you said there is students need to learn to do something that's under their control, that has learning as the byproduct, I think is a great way to put it. And that relates back to your very famous kind of one line, which is memory is the residue of thought. So the the, the byproduct there is the residue and the, the thing that they do that's under their control is the actual thought part. Love that. Then the way that you structure the book is super super fantastic. It basically takes students through, you know, here's how to understand a lecture, here's how to do the readings. Here's how to make notes. It's just really well set out. So there are a few of the sections, some of which I've mentioned there, that I'd really love to dive a little bit deeper into in our discussion today. The first one is, in to, well, the first section I'd like us to open up is really understanding a lecture. And you suggest in the book that misunderstandings when students are listening to lectures and lectures usually occur not because of a failed fact search and this is when they're trying to remember what happened in a lecture, uh, but instead from a failed connection. What do you mean by like fact search versus connection? And maybe you could give an example of this. This is really about when you notice, oh, I don't really understand that, and I, I had better do something about it. So what I suggest in the book is there are two categories of those sorts of misunderstandings. One is where it, it would be a vocabulary, a vocabulary word or a fact. You know, I, I say something. So it's something kind of isolated. I use the word in the book, I use the word parlous as an example, as sort of a low frequency word that I think I didn't know before I, <laughs> before I wrote the book. I looked up, I was trying to find a word I didn't know. 
to be really authentic. And so when someone says parlous, what happens? You search memory and you, there's no entry there. You're like, I don't know that word parlous. And that identi- that uh, alerts you that there's a, mis- you know, a misunderstanding on your part and you need to do something about it. So when a student, the, the uh, corresponding or the way that would play out in a classroom is a student is sitting there listening to a lecture and the teacher says something, either it's a vocabulary word or the teacher offers a new fact. You may know all the words, but it's clearly something that like you don't recognize this as part of memory. You know, so for example, that eggplants don't grow on trees if you're a young child like that may be news to you like i thought all uh, you know all fruits and vegetables were on trees you know what an eggplant is you know what a tree is but here's this punctate fact that doesn't really coordinate with anything in your memory those things are very easy to identify because it's just moment by moment you are listening and and you can't help but evaluate these these things vis-a-vis memory, compare them to whether or not this is something that I already know. The other way that you, so this is why students usually they're, when they're in a lecture situation, their notes are full of facts. They're full of vocabulary terms and definitions. Students are very good at getting those down. The other way that you are alerted to the the fact that you don't understand something is a missed connection. So this is something that I've written about a lot in the context of reading comprehension, that frequently when you think about it, the the, uh, neighboring sentences can really be not, can be viewed as non sequiturs. So for example, I might say, oh, I have no coffee. Could you hand me that box of tissues? Now, if you're, if you think about like that seems like they're not really connected at all. And then you might realize, oh God, he probably spilled his coffee. And that's why he doesn't have any coffee and he wants the tissues to clean up the coffee. Now, if you make that connection, all is well. If you're unable to make a connection, you're confused. And you would say, oh, sure, but why do you, why do you want the tissues? Right. So frequently this happens that people say things that they're, there's not, it explicit in the language, a clear connection, but they're counting on the fact that you have enough information in memory that you're going to be able to uh, build a bridge between that. That like one of the things that one, one of the ways reasons you would say like, Oh crap, my coffee's gone uh, is really because you spilled it. And then likewise, one of the consequences of spillage is it makes a mess and you want to clean it up and so forth. Okay. So, This is another way that students could be alerted to the fact that they don't understand something is when they fail to make a connection. So the teacher just assumes more knowledge than the students really have. Now, the the way this is where things get, if that wasn't complicated enough, there's more. So the, the reason that lectures can be so difficult is missing that second type of connection. So what I argue is you're very unlikely when you're sitting in a classroom to fail to realize that there's a fact or a definition that you don't understand. It's just like a vocabulary term. You, you can't miss the fact that like this is not in my memory. But with connections, you can miss a connection that the teacher thinks you're making And you might be making some sort of a connection, but you missed the connection that 
was really intended. So the example I give in the book is a teacher in an American history class says Shirley Temple was a famous actress and she made many of her movies during the 1930s. She was a child actress. Many of these movies were very upbeat and were meant to make their audiences feel happy and uh, so forth. So you feel like, okay, no, I mean, the second sentence totally follows from the first sentence. You told me one thing about Shirley Temple movies, and then you told me something else about them. No problem. The teacher, meanwhile, may be thinking, you remember that a couple of lectures ago, I mentioned that during the 1930s, America was in the midst of the Great Depression. And economic times were terrible. People were, you know, felt terrible. And so that puts a different light on why you mention that Shirley Temple movies were designed to be sort of escapist, happy entertainment. And this, I think, helps us understand why students, you know, their perception of lectures and their notes are full of facts because facts sort of hit you in definitions that hits you in the face with the fact that, you know, you don't understand this. You better, you know, come to understand it. Put your hand up in the air if you didn't get that definition. Whereas the kinds of things we're always upset our students don't understand are these deeper connections. And so the idea is that, yeah, they're making more shallow connections. That makes them think they've got it. And so they don't realize that there's still a deeper level of meaning that they don't have. That's so great, Dan. I mean, the the question that naturally follows from that is, how do students know if they're making the connections that the lecturer intends them to make, and how do they remediate it if they're not? There are a couple of ways a student might know. What I thought you were going to ask is, how can the teacher make sure that they're maximizing the chances the student gets it? And the, the answer, of course, is to be as explicit as possible about these connections you're expecting students to make. So it's something I go into in still a little bit more detail. It, it's, not as, it's not as horrible reading this book as I'm making it. <laughs> I keep saying like, and there's more detail, and it's even more complicated than that. I, I think the structure, the way most people who are going to do a, a, gonna do a lecture, even if it's a mini lecture, the way they structure it tends to be hierarchical. You know, here's the main subject. There are three subpoints, see three key takeaways that I want you to get from that. And then under each of those key takeaways, there's you know a couple of examples, and then there's an explanation and so forth. And what that hierarchical structure means when you sort of think about how that lecture would actually look is that when I get to the third reason that Shirley Temple movies were popular during the depression. You know, the first reason that I mentioned might have that might have been 5 minutes ago I was talking about that. But I'm expecting you to make that link. I'm expecting you to recognize how what I'm talking about now relates to what I talked about 4 minutes ago and also what I talked about 6 minutes ago. All of those are reasons that the Shirley Temple movies were popular during the 1930s. So one thing that teachers can do of course is be very explicit about that structure and say, I'm going to tell you three reasons that blah, blah, blah. And then as you go, say like, okay, I said there were going to be three reasons. That's reason number two. Now let's move on to reason number three. And there's lots of studies showing that doing that kind of signposting is valuable. 
from a student perspective, students, first of all, I think it helps a little bit if students are at the least aware of the fact that this is a thing and they need to be trying to think about what those connections are. One of the things they can do is, and I actually suggest in the book, instructors will usually stop periodically and say, are there any questions? And this is something you should be thinking about. Uh, not just, do I understand what you just talked about for the last five minutes, but also, do I have any idea of what it's supposed to connect to? Do I know what the main theme of the day is? If I don't, that's a good question to ask. And if I do know what the main theme of the day is, how does this little bit that he just finished talking about, how does it connect to the main theme of the day? That's great. I love this, Dan, because you, you're highlighting a mismatch. One of, the, one of the parts I loved in the book the most was that you really highlighted the mismatch between how knowledge is structured and how the lecturer, the kind of mental model, the schema that the lecturer wants you to take away from the lecture and how speech and time necessitates that information is presented, which is sequentially and not in the, in this necessarily in the hierarchical order. And following that, you kind of provided some advice to readers and in this context to listeners about how they should take notes given that they're trying to actually take away this hierarchical structure of information. Did you want to expand upon that for listeners? Yeah, I mean, briefly, I think the biggest thing is that, yeah, you're trying to recover that structure because the structure carries information. Now, if you think about sort of a tree diagram as, you know, with sort of nodes and then links going down to other nodes and so forth, those links are exactly the kind of stuff that instructors usually care about. You could label those as this point here is sort of nested under this other because it's an example of that general principle. This other point is nested under the same link. It's not an example. It's a counterexample that we need to account for. Here's another one that is, you know, it's a subcategory and so forth, right? So those links, like how things connect are absolutely vital. So trying to recover that structure is very challenging. And so what I recommend students do is, yeah, be thinking about it as much as you can during a class, but usually like it's a pretty frantic affair anyway, <laughs> just trying to take notes and it's new content and it's usually going to be challenging. So what I say is you really need to look at your notes afterwards and try and impose some structure at that point. Students are understandably very reluctant to do this because you feel like, my God, I had to sit there listening to Willingham for 75 minutes. And now you want me later in the day to go back and look at my notes even more. And the, the one thing that, that may make students a little more open to this idea is this is a great way to study. Thinking about the structure of the lecture, I mean, we've, we've already been over the idea that, you know, memory is the residue felt. Whatever you're thinking about, you're going to remember. You don't have to be thinking in my head, this is a studying activity. Students usually have a very narrow definition of what it means to study. Doing something like reorganizing your notes, trying to figure out how things connect is not only going to make, help make your notes clearer to you and more complete, it's also going to really help to cement that information in memory so that when you are preparing for an examination, you're going to find you already know a lot of the content. Mm, that's great. And I think in, in the book, you also gave the explicit advice of 
you know, the hierarchy can often be quite complex, interconnected and have multiple levels. But for students who are kind of trying to deal with that frantic note-taking that's often often the case when they are li- listening or watching a lecture, focusing on really making sure you have the first two levels of that hierarchy, I thought was a fantastic, really strong practical bit of advice as well. Something that you said there is, I mean, what the, what the lecturer can do is really make sure that they're making the connections they want the students to take away really explicit to the listeners. And something the students can do is make sure that they are asking questions when they're unsure about whether they're making the right connections or not. That kind of links to something else that you went into detail in the book, which is like how to ask good questions as a student, because it's quite an interesting one. Often as teachers, we say, oh, if you don't understand, make sure you ask questions. But then we sometimes we find that students ask questions that are kind of a little bit silly or a bit annoying. Like they might say, I didn't get that. Can you explain it to me again? Which is sometimes an appropriate question, but often you're like, I was just talking for 10 minutes. I, I don't want to talk for another 10 minutes in a slightly different way. So what advice, what practical advice do you give to students when they say, you know, my lecturer told me to ask questions, but every time I ask a question, they seem to be annoyed. Well, yeah, I mean, there. so the, what you said there at the, at the last bit was like a little different than what I had thought you were leading up to, which, you know, the instructor being annoyed. So let me start with, actually, let me start with that and dismiss that. Like instructors should never be annoyed by questions. Like if you are annoyed by questions, don't be surprised that nobody asks questions in your class. And furthermore, uh, you know, you're, that's something you need to work on as a teacher. All of us, of course, get, you know, a little frustrated, you know, as you said, it's like 10 minutes, you go through explaining why two plus two is four. And then someone raises their hand and says two plus two is what now? Right? I mean, that, you know, that it, it, you do feel like you just haven't been listening. But, you know, you, you can't let that show. I mean, if you, if you want a positive atmosphere in your class and you want people to be, feel ready to ask, answer questions, they're, they're already so, you know, embarrassed in front of their peers, most of them, that you, you really, it's really up to you to set the tone about what happens regarding questions. And the stress test case is when someone asks a stupid question. And I always say, you know, in my classes, I'm like, of course, there's stupid questions. Like, you know, it's, it's silly to pretend otherwise. But the thing is, like, everybody asks stupid questions. So just like, you know, you can't let that inhibit you. I don't think it really normalizes it. But it shows like, you know, I'm trying to have a sense of humor about this. Let's not get upset. The biggest case, though, is when someone does say two plus two equals what now? And there I say, like, you just answer the question and briskly move on. Just matter of like, do not acknowledge the student just finished, you know, ask something that you just finished explaining because everyone else in the class knows that that's the case. And then they're going to be afraid anytime they're, they have a question that could be a legitimate good question. They're going to be afraid. What if he said that and I didn't notice? And that's why I miss it. And now I'm going to get shamed if I asked, right? So you, you can't show that they're asking something you've, you've just finished explaining. That's great, Dan. So that's kind of the role of the teacher in ensuring that they build what Doug Lemov calls a culture of error. And you've offered some really fantastic practical advice about how teachers can do that there in terms of just uh, listening carefully, never never calling any question a silly question and and deciding to potentially address the question quickly and efficiently or talk about catching up with a student after school or sorry, after the lecture. If there are students listening who think, well, that's, that's all well and good, but I as a student, how can I make sure that I don't myself ask silly questions? Uh, what advice would you have for them? 
Right. So if you, and this may not be exactly what you were trying to get at, but th this is what comes to mind is, is helping students get over their reluctance to ask questions. So what I point out is that if you're reluctant to ask questions, it, there's one, and, and it's not that your teacher is uh, sort of has this negative cast to it. It's usually that there's one of a few reasons. One reason students are reluctant to ask questions is they feel like they're going to slow the rest of the class down. And what I point out in the book is like, this isn't really your choice. You know, it's up to me whether or not I go over something again. As you said, like, you know, you've been over it 10 minutes and then they say, I didn't really get that. And so what I suggest they do is explain the part that you did understand if there was some part of it, right? And that sort of shows like, yes, yeah, so, you know, I was listening. Uh, I'm not a complete idiot and I was paying attention and I got part of it, but this part of it I didn't get. And if you're worried about, you know, returning now to the, like, that, that sort of addresses the, I don't want to look stupid. It's like, you'll look, you'll feel less like I look stupid if you, uh, if the question sort of shows there's some thought behind it. And then the other bit is like, I don't want to waste the class time. And that's where the part that I was saying before is relevant. Like, that's not really your call. You know, when a, a student asks me something that I know is going to take a while to explain, like what I do varies. And I'm looking at other faces to see whether other people are really pleased that that question came up or whether like it's clear no one's listening because they already got it and they don't feel the need to hear the, the, the question again. And of course, there's also sort of my history with other classes and whether this is usually something that gives people trouble or not. So students just need to know that teachers are, are very happy to say like, yeah, it's a complicated concept. It's going to take me a while to, to do that, you know, to uh, get into it again. Let's connect after class and we can, uh, we can talk about it. The other thing that I think comes up a lot with students is I don't, I don't want to ask questions because I'm shy. And it feels, you know, that feels very legitimate to students. And I definitely get it because they feel like this is my personality. Like there's nothing I can do about it. So I need a different mechanism than asking questions. And what I encourage students to do is you need to think about this as a life skill. This is something you need to learn how to do. And you definitely can get better with practice, but it's, you know, it's not really optional. Like in life, you are going to have to ask questions in semi-public venues. Well, you know, almost any workforce situation you find yourself in. So you may, you know, you may never be great at it, but I mean, it's no different than saying like, I'm not very good at math. It's like, I get that and I'm I'm sorry about it but like you know you it's still like really important that you reach some level of of comfort with with uh, with this content and in the case of questions like same thing you need to even if you're never comfortable you need to be able to do it even though you're not comfortable. Thanks Dan that's super valuable. So I mean just to summarize there what you've highlighted was kind of three things. The first was the absolutely crucial role of the teacher or lecturer in welcoming questions. And, and as we talk, spoke about just now, irrespective of how silly the question might seem, having some phrases and having some go-to responses to make sure that we are building that culture of error is crucial. Uh, secondly, if students are wondering about whether or not they should ask a question, they should really, they shouldn't feel bad about it because they should understand that it's not actually their job to decide whether a question is appropriate or is important to be asked. But actually, they should trust that the, the 
teacher or the lecturer is in the driver's seat and they should trust the teacher or lecturer to make a good decision for the class about whether that question is or isn't worth addressing. And then thirdly, if there is someone out there, a student out there who's looking for better ways to ask questions and try to avoid asking something that um, could be potentially construed as a, a silly question, then if they can just be, make sure that they're as explicit as they can be uh, what, about what part of the explanation they did understand and about what part they didn't understand, that's going to ensure that their questions are precise and they're going to be really clear to the lecturer and is also going to increase the probability of that question being specifically answered. Absolutely love it. So we've talked a little bit about what understanding means in terms of facts and connections. We've talked a little bit about asking questions and we have touched a little bit upon note taking so far and the idea of kind of getting those first two layers of the hierarchy down. But I think that's something that a lot of students might not have actually thought about the kind of depth that you go into in the book is like, what is actually the point of making notes? Could you tell us about that, Dan? Sure. And it's the kind of thing that there actually have been a, a number of studies of this where students are just asked, like, do you take notes? And they almost all say yes. And they say, why? And it turns out students as young as, you know, 11 or 12, pretty much like when they start taking notes in most school systems, they give pretty good reasons. The two main reasons to take notes are first, taking notes helps cement things into memory. Just the act of taking notes, writing things down, helps you remember the content. And second, notes can serve as a cue to the memory of the content. It's a hint or a cue to bring you back to the mind state, the state of mind you were in when you were in class and understanding the content. So very briefly, I don't even talk about this in the book, but I think your listeners are a little more interested in experiments than, than, the, the, than most people are. I'll just briefly mention the way these experiments go. You have people listen to a videotape lecture and they either take notes or they don't take notes. And then you administer an, a, a quiz on the video content later. And the people who took notes don't have access to their notes we find they do a little bit better than the people who weren't taking notes, right? So there's something about this that's helping focus attention. The fact that you're trying to phrase things in a particular way maybe means you're rehearsing it or something. And then the other thing they have people do is they'll have people watch a video and then they get access to notes that someone else took. They, 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 again, they're gonna, there's a delay and then they take a quiz and they get access to notes that someone else took. So now they get this sort of memory cue that they themselves didn't create and you see a boost in performance. So both reasons that young students intuit turn out to be experimentally uh, validated. That's great. So to summarize that kind of two benefits of notes, one is what we might call a generative learning effect. Taking the notes itself actually contributes. It's kind of that thought that then the, the memory is the residue of, uh, and also they, they can act as a reminder of what happened. That's great. I mean, something I was interesting, interested to read in your book, Dan, was that you suggested or you actually advised against students using specific note-taking systems. Why is that? I think that the the benefit is not worth the cost and there is a cost i mean we've we've said that you you're sort of in constant well i don't actually maybe we didn't say it but let's say it now students are in sort of constant mental overload when they're trying to take notes 
And the problem with note-taking systems is that it adds one more thing for you to think of. You know, if you're doing Cornell, you're like trying to think, okay, is this going to be on the side of the page or is this going to be one of those bottom of the page things? So it just gives you an extra thing to think about trying to put your, fit your notes into the format. Now, naturally, if you did this long enough, that would become a very low cost thing. So it, it's conceivable it would be worth it. The literature on note-taking is, is actually a little bit scattered. And, and by scattered, I really mean it's not systematic. Like, okay, let's look at system A and compare that to nothing. Okay, system A is better than no instruction and note-taking. Let's try system A versus system B or system A versus system A prime. Or let's follow through long-term to like students really keep using this. Like let's visit, revisit them a, uh, you know, a year or two later and see if they've stuck with it, if it seemed worth it to them. There's little or no of that. And what there is a lot of is Ollie decides, he, f- he figures out a, what he thinks is a good note-taking system. And so he tests it against doing nothing. And so what you get from the article is Ollie's magical note-taking system is better than business as usual. And what I take from that is like getting students to think about their notes helps. And there's a huge variety of note-taking systems, all of which seem to be better than no instruction at all. And so I think you probably get most or all of the benefit by talking with students about what the purpose of their notes is and then what is likely not to end up in their notes, which we've already talked about, and how they can, which is that sort of connection among the ideas and how they can be more sure to get those connections in their notes. Cool. And I guess we should emphasize here as well that we're we're talking about the initial note taking right in the lecture. And then you actually suggest in the book a second stage, which you call reorganizing your notes, which will come across as well. I, I see what you're saying there in terms of like there's a cognitive load associated with applying a system, at least if you haven't kind of automated the use of that system yet. And if you're not keen to make the investment to automate that system i get and i guess we can complement that with the idea that it is helping students learn that part of the point of what you're doing is trying to collect that hierarchy and kind of order the the thoughts and the ideas within that hierarchy so there's probably going to be some sort of hierarchy reflected in the initial notes that you make but you don't need to like make a really really structured system around the way that you do that 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 makes that makes sense dan this is uh, and part of this part of the reason i say this too is that you know, this book is written for a student trying to improve their performance in, in school. I can imagine like visiting a school where they're like, we are very big on the Cornell system. All of our students learn it. That's how, you know, and they learn it really early and we support it and we scaffold it and so on. And so, you know, I would never say like, oh, well, I think that's a terrible idea. I certainly don't think it like it's destructive or something like that. And if there's lots of support. And it's not just a student trying to figure it out on their own. And this is a uniform expectation across all classes, then like, that's a very different situation. So you can imagine contexts in which it would make much more sense. Mm, thanks, Dan. That's a really valuable addition. Something students might also have to decide is like, if a lecturer provides the slides or their lecture notes before a lecture, like what to do with them? Do they take them in with them and try to follow along? Do they use them as a supplement afterwards? What would be your suggestions in that context? Yeah, and and students really like that idea because it does help them follow along, right? It helps them understand the structure of the lecture. And so they feel like they're understanding better, and they probably are. On the other hand, we've already talked about like 
two of the functions of notes, one of which is not just that it's going to provide better cues, but that the process of taking notes is itself providing a memory benefit. And so students are going to lose out on that. So I talk about this at some length in the book and, and point out that like providing notes versus not providing notes really there are pluses and minuses both ways. If you provide notes, they get very complete notes, and student-taking notes will not be very complete. But on the other hand, they're missing out on the memory benefit. So I think for instructors, you know, you, you just want to think about the pluses and minuses and think about what do I want to do? You know, it may vary lecture by lecture, if not class by class. And I could imagine, you know, saying, it, I've never done this or seen anyone do this. So I'm like, this is off the top of my head. I don't know how students react to this. I was started to say, like, you could imagine, like, some lessons, you know, some some classes you're going to get my notes and some you're not. And here's why I'm doing it that way. And you'll know in advance, I'll give you the schedule so that you know what to expect. That might make sense. It would definitely be an extra burden for students to, like, have to sort of keep track of, like, whether am I, am I taking notes today or not? And some of your students are going to mix that up and so on. So it, it might be a catastrophe. But in principle, just just vis-a-vis like what the, the functions of notes are and what the content of that lesson would be that day, that might make sense. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This episode's summary is a huge one because I share all my takeaways from this discussion with Dan, such as his advice on understanding a lecture, taking good notes and reorganizing notes, but I also share my notes from a bunch of the chapters that we didn't get the chance to discuss in this short podcast. This includes my key takeaways on how to read difficult books, how to study for exams, how to judge whether you're ready for an exam, how to take tests, and crucially, how to learn from past exams. This summary is a combination of both Dan's insights and my own knowledge and experience experience and it's definitely my most important podcast summary to date on the topic of becoming a more effective student and learner. At higher tiers, ERRR supporters also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR. Clip requests of your favorite episode segments and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast, to explore the additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, let's jump straight back into this episode of the ERRR podcast kind of building on that one of the things that you said in the book as well and this kind of relates to this note-taking piece is never write anything that you don't understand I found this really interesting because when I was doing my physics degree I found that it was actually crucial for me to write things that I didn't understand all the time and it was also crucial and it was really helpful for me to actually take in the notes uh, that were provided to me beforehand let me let me explain kind of how I did it so 
often I would like basically I would always get lost in lectures. Like it was inevitable. Like I might manage to concentrate, not, not concentrate, but I might manage to make the connections for five minutes, three minutes, 10 minutes. But usually before the halfway mark in a lecture, I was completely lost with what the lecture was saying. So what I, the, by third year, the method of, of taking notes that I developed is take the slides that the lecturer had shared, save them as a PDF, bring them along on my laptop and follow along and basically use those kind of stickies, the digital sticky notes for like different points. So the lecturer might point to somewhere in a diagram or a part of an equation or they're working and they'd say, this is a really important point. At this point, what we're doing is we're blah, 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 something really complicated, which I had no idea what they were talking about. And I found that what I could do is basically all my note taking, the vast majority of it wasn't generative because I wasn't understanding, but it was all about what what's the actually important stuff for me to take away here so that I can go and decipher it in my own time and, and working with friends. So that was an interesting kind of counterexample to your assertion that one, you shouldn't bring the lecture notes into the class and two, you know, never write anything that you don't understand. Uh, and, you know, that approach did did work well for me and I managed to achieve high marks with it. So I'd, I'd love your, your response to that. So a, a couple of things. One is that, um, and I can't remember whether... I talked about this in the book. You know, one case where what I describe clearly won't work, and yours may be a case in point, is where there are complex figures that students need to have access to. I think I did talk about this in notes for the instructor, so that when you have, if you're not passing out slides in advance, students will fr be frantically trying to copy down graphs and, and figures. And so you do want to make clear to students this is going to be available to you later. You don't need to copy this down with fidelity. But what I encourage the student to do is to sketch out something very schematic of what it is, but you know, capturing in, in words, if necessary, what the key point of that graph is. So you know, I use the example of like a negatively accelerating curve that's a graph that's showing you know, sales or something like that. And that can mean lots of things. It could mean, you know, sales used to be really good. Now they're terrible. Or it might mean sales were really good until 2008 and then something happened and then they flattened and so forth, right? So when you've got a, a figure, it's frequently ambiguous exactly why it was shown. And so you want to be sure that you've captured that. In terms of writing something down that you don't understand with the idea that I'll, I'm going to figure this out later, I think that's rare. I don't know of data on this. And so you're a case where this happened. I mean, I think what more typically happens is students find it very difficult to figure out, you know, if they didn't understand it in class, what they write down doesn't necessarily capture what was really important because they didn't understand it. So they're, they're not, they can't get everything. And so they, what they do write down may or may not have been the most important bits. And so it's very difficult for them to reconstruct. The other thing is I think more, stu more students get dejected and find it very difficult to both show up to class where they never understand what's going on and then have the stamina and the, the gumption to you know, actually do the work to figure it out later. Let me give you one example uh, that from a school that I was visiting yesterday that may indicate that the pandemic may have changed some student attitudes toward the kind of thing that we're talking about. This is a group of math teachers, and they said it's become very common for students to be very complacent during their classes. They don't want to do group work. They're not really listening during teacher talk. And in general, they're, they're, their attitude is, I'm going to watch YouTube videos later and figure this out. And that 
they became very used to doing that during pandemic. And so that's become kind of their go-to mode. Now, I will say teachers were not saying like, and this has been an incredible blessing because my goodness, now they're just ready to work on their own. Teachers were distressed by this and, and they thought that ultimately students weren't really benefiting from this method they were using. Let me ask you a question like, how do you think your, your physics instructors would feel knowing that you, you most of the time didn't know what in the world they were talking about and later had to go and unravel it yourself? I think they probably wouldn't be surprised at all because that was the case for a lot of people who were following it, who were who were in the lectures. You know, we started with a cohort of like over a hundred people, and there's like seven seven to twelve people. I can't remember the exact number left by the end of third year. So it's just inherently a very very hard topic, and it is the people who stick around are in a lot of ways the people who are willing to do a lot of figuring out themselves and a lot of watching of YouTube videos and things like that. So I think it probably wouldn't be that surprising to them. Well, I didn't mean, I didn't mean surprising in that way. I mean, obviously they, they can't help but know what's going on if they're, you know, alert at all. I guess I more meant, you know, sort of what they're what you suppose their take is this i mean this was this typical at your university across subjects or was this unique to physics and allied disciplines so like for example you know do do they think like yeah over there in psychology they teach the content and their expectations are such that you can understand the lectures that's foolish you know that doesn't make any that's not that's not really the way to teach it's a good point. Well, I mean, I did a double degree, so I did economics and physics. And in economics, I followed. It was like very. It was it was rare, not not super rare, but it was rare that I completely got lost and had to go like work this all out later on. Right? It was usually when they were doing some sort of movement of graphs, like or some supply and demand, and I'd kind of miss some connection. But I I think in in physics and and in maths as well, it happens a lot because it's like sequential. You know, here's multiple solution steps. You know, they might take a derivative in some weird coordinates or something and you haven't done that for like a few weeks and you only practice it a couple of times in an assignment and so when they explain that we now need to take a derivative in these coordinates or an integral over this space or whatever you're like oh yeah we did something about that three weeks ago but i can't remember like why we do that or in what context we do that so i just have to make a note like take an integral over the space this is important. He said it's important and we have to use these coordinates because that's the geometry of the situation. And then later on, I'm like, okay, so I know we have to take an integral, but like which integral and exactly why and, and you know, what's the math behind that? So that's the kind of step. And, and like that just happens so many times in a physics lecturer, in physics, physics lecture in third year uh, that I was just always like, all right, this is the thing you need to do. Can't remember why or exactly how, but that's the thing you need to do at this point and go and work that out later. Building upon that, I think you made a really good point there, which is like students, if they're not understanding, they're usually probably not writing down things that are sensible, right? They're probably writing, recording this, like maybe the little interesting bits of information that the lecturer kind of might be adding, but they're not making the broad connections. And so maybe I used a combination of like what was highlighted on the slide, but also I would use a lot of what the lecturer is kind of pointing out. I'm not saying this is like best, the, the best strategy for learning, but often lecturers emphasize things. So they'll say like, this is a re- this is an important point or like, make sure you remember this, right? And even if you don't understand what they say when, when they say that, like, it's probably a good idea to write down that thing that they say it's worthwhile remembering. I mean, what I really meant by that was not, 
If you don't understand it, don't write it down and then sit there. What I really meant was ask a question so that you will understand it. And uh, I can't remember, God, I hope I said that explicitly, that that was the solution. Not if you never write down something you don't understand. Instead, leave the room and probably drop the class, right? I mean, that's not, you know, that was not, that was not the intent at all. That's a great point. And I'll have, to, I'll have to go back to that portion of the book. Maybe I just didn't read it carefully enough. Maybe I should have taken a more comprehensive note, Stan. <laughs> I think another interesting uh, point, and this is one that I'm really keen for us to touch on because it's, it is a point of debate. It's that debate between laptops versus longhand notes. And a lot of people I've, that I've come across are quite adamant. They're like, you know, you've got to take longhand notes. Students who take longhand notes remember things more. Uh, but my argument is, well, like I can type probably about 10 times faster than I can write. And so I might get less of the generative benefit from typing, but I know I get much more of the recording benefit. So where, where do you stand on this and where do you think the research kind of stands? I think the research is a little murky right now. So there was a high profile study in I think 2014 that indicated that when people type their notes, they, they're more likely to fall into dictation mode where they're just writing down exactly what's said without really thinking about it. And the result was that when you take notes longhand, you are more likely to remember conceptual information because you have to be selective about what you write down and therefore you're really thinking during the lecture, whereas with typing, it, it feels more possible that you can kind of get everything. And so you're, you turn into a, a stenographer. There's been trouble replicating that finding. I think it's certainly the case that you can type fat. You know, if you're a moderately competent typist, you can record much more typing. And so where I land in the book is, you know, you need to think about what, what type of class this is and what type of notes you're taking. If it's the beginning of a lab section and the TA is giving final instructions and amplifying on the photocopied instructions for how to do the lab, then the details matter and you need to get this down so that you are doing the lab correctly and typing makes all the sense in the world. At the other extreme, you know, if you're taking a creative writing class and the class is mostly critiquing one another's short stories, this is not going to be a note-taking fiesta. This is, you know, you are occasionally going to be having some important insights that you want to be sure you don't forget. And so longhand makes sense. But to me, all, all, the most important factor, these are, these are going to be, uh, these effects might be real that, that I've been discussing, but what is definitely going to be very real is the probability of distraction if you're typing, because if you're typing, you're going to be on a tablet or a laptop and the internet is going to be there. And scales fell from my eyes. I can't remember how many years ago it was, maybe seven years ago now. And I, of course, was aware of the possibility that students weren't really listening to me because they were, you know, they had laptops and they were doing other things. And I had a friend from the School of Engineering. I asked him to watch my class, observe my class and just, you know, just to give me his impressions and things I could do better and so forth. So he sat in the back and he came down and he said, Dan, everybody is like shopping for shoes. I mean, <laughs> I had thought of myself as like, you know, like I'm a pretty good lecturer. You know, I get like the students, uh, I get positive feedback from the students. Uh, and so it, it made me realize like I had no idea what was going on in my class. And that was what convinced me that, you know, because a lot of my colleagues said like, look, 
you know, you teach in you're teaching college. These are adults. If they're they're paying for this, uh, if they want to shop for shoes during your lectures, so be it. And I decided that was just irresponsible on my part. And it was my job to create an environment in which students were most likely to learn. You know, if you characterize that as saving them from themselves, then I guess that's what it is. But that was that was when I made my classes no devices classes. You used to hear, you don't hear it as much, you used to hear people say like, well, you should just be more interesting than, you know, so you're so interesting that they won't want to shop for shoes or instant message their friends or whatever, to which I say like, well, I'm not. So, you know, like, I'm, their friends are more interesting than me and I don't, I, I don't know how to be more interesting than their friends. So, yeah, that, that to me, the, that to me is probably the most important factor in the note-taking Issue. That's great. So I guess from a from a from a teacher or a lecturer's perspective, that that makes sense. Like on balance, probably the the major factor that either helps or hinders note taking, and that the argument between um, devices or, or longhand is that devices are distracting for students. So as a broad rule, that's probably the best advice. And then if you're an individual student in a class where the lecturer is giving you the choice of how to make take your notes, it's valuable to think about yourself as a learner. Like, are you likely to look at your notes again? If you're not, maybe focus on the generative effects. Um, but if you are and you're a fast typer, maybe you do that. Are you the kind of person who gets distracted uh, as well? And if you are the kind of person who gets distracted, then, you know, just do longhand anyway because that's going to keep you safe from your distractions. So uh, a very mechanistic kind of answer, uh, which is great and gives people some, 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 good, some good tips to go away. So we've talked a little bit about, um, we've talked quite a bit about kind of what it means to understand the importance of connections and things like that. We've talked about making notes and gone into depth on that, which is great because it's a, it's a really important area to discuss. But something you emphasize even more in the book perhaps is the idea of like reorganizing your notes and the importance of reorganizing notes. And you spoke earlier, you've already emphasize that, you know, some students might be reluctant to kind of reorganize their notes because they're like, why would I reorganize my notes when I could be studying instead? And the fact that, well, actually reorganizing your notes is studying because um, memory is the residue of thought and you're doing valuable thought to reorganize those notes. So if, if a learner's listening and they've, they've heard that and they're like, okay, great, I understand that organizing my notes is going to be a valuable learning activity. What should they actually do? Like what should reorganized notes look like, Dan? I think that what you're trying to do is recover the structure of the lecture or the lesson plan. Every teacher, when they plan a lesson, they have a structure in mind. I mean, occasionally uh, teachers will do, and some, te some teachers like to do a lot of this, say like, no, I don't have a plan. Like, we're going to figure it out as we go. Nevertheless, like at the, uh, and this is something that I do sometimes. And when I do, I'm, I'm really trying to make sure at the end of the class, I say, okay, everybody, like last five minutes, where have we been? Like, you know, where do we start? Where did we end up? What, what, you know, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is impose some structure and make some connections so people can think about that. More often, I have a plan. And whether it's a lecture where it's very explicit or whether, it's like combination, like I'm doing a little bit of talk and then there's going to be some group work and then I'm going to talk, you know, and so forth. And I, it's a mixture. There's still a plan about how all these different things connect to one another. That's what students are trying to capture. So 
a student doesn't want to make it completely mechanistic. Like I go through these steps and then I've done whatever it is Willingham said was a good idea, I guess, right? It's much more, here's what your goal is. And now you have to think of what is an appropriate way to meet that goal? How am I going to, and this is all predicated, right? On the idea that the teacher has not been as clear as they probably could have been about what that structure is. Ideally, the teacher is going to communicate that structure. You're doing an activity. They're telling you why you're doing the activity and what the uh, what you were supposed to get out of it by the end and how it connects to something that you did last week and how that connects to the reading and so forth. If they're not doing that, it's up to you to make those connections yourself. I give one you know, very concrete idea in the book, which is to create a hierarchy, create a tree diagram of these different ideas. And again, if you're in a, if you're in a lecture where you know, it's mostly teacher talk, there's usually between, and it's sort of 50 minutes, an hour, something like that, there's usually between three and seven key takeaways. Identify what those are. Uh, and actually, you know, talked about this in a TikTok video recently and, and talked about the, and it was actually kind of nice because I could sort of demonstrate what I said in the book that, you know, when you're, if the teacher is halfway decent, when they come to something that's a key conclusion, you will see it in their body language. You know, they will sort of, they'll become bigger and they will, you'll get more eye contact from them. Like they will show you that this is important. They may repeat it word for word, right? There are these signals that the, the teacher is giving you that this is a major conclusion. So those shouldn't be that hard to identify. So you make, and I encourage students when you're in class and you're like, aha, this must be one of those key conclusions I'm supposed to look for, put an asterisk next to it or something so that it's easy to find later. And then in terms of reorganizing your notes, if like the simplest version of this, if you're not going to make an elaborate tree diagram, okay, at the very least, make sure you know what the key takeaways are. And then everything else, every other idea that's in your notes, be sure you know how it connects, which of the key takeaways it connects to and how. Is it connected because it's an example of it? Is it a qualification of the key takeaway and so forth? So building this picture of kind of effective learning, we've got like students in the lecture, they're listening for connections in particular, they're making notes and benefiting from the kind of generative effects of that note taking, as well as the ability to record key ideas. Uh, They're really highlighting or using an asterisk to record the like five to seven, however many it may be, major takeaways. Then they're going away, they're reorganizing their notes. And crucially during that reorganization phase, they're thinking to themselves, okay, how does like every bit of note that I've got relate back to at least one of the big takeaways and each of which hopefully links back to like the theme of the lecture. uh, If the lecturer has done a good enough job of ensuring there's coherence there. Once I've done that, the next kind of step to really getting this into long-term memory and preparing for exams that you suggest is for students to create study guides. What should a student's study guide look like and how is it different from like their original notes and also their like reorganized notes? I suggest that they structure their study guide so that it's going to be maximally efficient for studying. And this is predicated on the notion that you're, you know, what you need to do when you on an exam is you need to have a bunch of stuff committed to memory. And the easiest way to commit things to memory is to test yourself. 
uh, and I expect your listeners are pretty familiar with the testing effect. So that's what we're capitalizing on. And so, yeah, I recommend that your study guide take a question answer format. And this is obviously, you know, definitions and terms are, are very susceptible to, to that format. But I emphasize, you know, if you're, if you're going to take an essay exam, you absolutely can create a study guide that is in question answer form. I actually started doing this in graduate school where, you know, all of my exams, and I had plenty of exams, were essay exams. But what it prompted me to do was to think of the types of essay questions that my professors were likely to pose. So, you know, you're thinking about big picture themes and the kinds of things that were, that were emphasized across lectures that would have really complex answers. And you can pose those questions to yourself. And then since you're testing yourself, you need there to be an answer to know whether or not you've gotten it right. Uh, and that, of course, is a very good exercise, too, thinking through, okay, that's a really you know, meaty question there. What would be a good answer? And then sort of you know, just have, you're obviously not going to write a whole essay, but having bullet points, like these are the kinds of things that we've been talking about uh, over the course that would, uh, that ought to be included in an answer to that broad question. That's great. So I'm interested in like your, your key point there that I took away and also the key point in the book about making study guides, guides is like make them easy to use to get the info into memory, which means make them good for retrieval practice or the testing effect, as you put it. The way that I did that, and I, I started doing exactly the same thing at uni as well. The way that I did it was I would take rough notes. I would re- reorganize the notes and it was this, I'm talking about economics now, not physics, but I'd reorganize them note, those notes into like a hierarchical form. And then at the start of each dot point that was either like indented by different amounts, I'd have like the two or three words that described what the economic idea, what the point was, or like evidence for this is, something like that. And then I'd have the description. And then I'd copy paste that whole page worth of content onto the following page, leave it complete. And on the prior page, I'd delete all the descriptions and just leave the kind of like headings. And I'd flip back and forth and I'd mark the ones that I get ro- got wrong and so on. And that was a way that was uh, effective for me. First of all, what do you, do you see that as an effective approach and do you see any downsides? And second of all, you kind of also talked about the importance and the value of flashcards, which is something we've talked about on this podcast a lot. Like when should students use kind of like an outline retrieval approach and when should they be moving to flashcards and do they need to use both or, you know, enlighten us a little bit here, Dan. When you say outline retrieval, you, you mean, I mean, it, it still feels pretty flashcardy, right? Are you just talking about sort of the length of the answers? The idea of a flashcard is, it's kind of like a discrete idea or connection that you're trying to retrieve that can then be kind of shuffled and mixed around. Whereas an outline is like an A, usually an A4 sheet, you could print out bigger or small if you wanted, but you've got the outline without the information that kind of furnishes that outline. Yeah. I mean, it feels like you could use a mix. I mean, I, I think is, you know, cognitively it, it, I, I can't see that it matters very much. It might, if I thought about it a little bit more, I would see something or someone might point out to me. But if a student did either one of those, I'd be very pleased. <laughs> um, you know, you just have to make sure that you are in some way rehearsing and ideally rehearsing through retrieval practice uh, just because it's going to make it easier for you, the content that you need to learn. And it, you know, it needs to be at the levels of complexity that are going to be appropriate to whatever exam you're facing. And this is something that 
I think students don't fully appreciate is that different exams call for different study tactics. If you're looking at a multiple choice exam, you know that it's easier to spot information. Like if it's a definition of a term or something, it's easier to recognize it and say, oh, there it is compared to recall it. Well, you know, teachers know that too. And so they give wrong answers along with the right one that are very similar, right? And this is what's, of course, so frustrating about multiple choice exams. So on multiple choice, and contrast that with a short answer where you get to kind of pick how you phrase it. And if you get it kind of right, you know, I could probably get some partial credit, right? It doesn't, doesn't need to be perfect, but remembering it, dredging it out of memory is much more challenging. And then when it's an essay exam, you get to decide which facts you're going to include to marshal your argument so that if there's something you actually can't remember, that may not hurt you that much, as long as you can still talk about the theme. If there's one specific factoid that you don't remember, that may not really be relevant at all. So you need to you need to recognize this and study accordingly. If you're facing an exam that's mostly multiple choice, you need to know the details of these definitions and you know anything that has details associated with it. You better know the details because that's going to be the difference between the right answer and the wrong. And when it comes to an essay exam, you can worry about that less, but you need to worry more about broad themes because those are much easier to test. Mm, that's great. So, I mean, in, in terms of making these study guides, whether students do kind of do it in a hierarchical dot point format, and I'll, I'll put an example of what I'm talking about in the show notes for listeners so it's a little bit clearer, or whether they go to flashcards, there's no doubt that something that they'll likely do throughout this process is get together with a few friends to kind of study together. Right. So, this is another, this, and this is probably like the last question I'm really keen to, to ask you today on on like effective study. What is the best way that students can use collective or group work study time uh, where they get together with friends and try to prepare for a subject or exam? So first let me say that this is the kind of thing that would seem like, because it's such a common practice, it would seem like there would be great empirical data uh, and, a, and a good empirical answer to your question. And as far as I can tell, there's really not. You know, on a moment's reflection, you can see why. I mean, it's very hard to sort of get and ecologically valid study going on this kind of thing. So much is going to depend on the composition of the group, what they choose to do, how they interact with the subject matter, and so on. My feeling is that studying together, like literally trying to commit things to memory together, there's not much reason to do that together. And it's much more likely that you know, if, if it were me, I would just end up like socializing with my friends and it would not end up being very valuable time. I think that you need to think about instances where your friends can help you do things you couldn't do on your own. So one thing your friends can help you do is understand content that you are having a hard time with. So that I think is really valuable um, study group time. Another is helping you be sure that your notes are really complete everybody's notes are going to be incomplete, but everyone's going to miss different things. So you can put your heads together and come up with a much better set of notes in a group format. And then the third thing I, I think is helpful is after you feel like I've studied pretty well and I'm feeling pretty good about my preparation for the exam, 
if you can manage to do that and your study group mates, I do think it's useful to have a study group, by the way, for uh, I should be clear, because because of these things that, that I'm mentioning that you can do. If everybody in your study group can manage to be ready for the exam, you know, 24 hours in advance or 36, then you can get together and quiz one another. And once again, you will have recognize things that are important and likely to be on the test that I didn't think of and vice versa. And also, crucially, you'll phrase things a little bit differently. You've got slightly different examples. And so for me to take content that I already know and then hear your cast on it, I'm really going to benefit from that. So those, those are three things that I think study groups are useful for. We might move into some closing questions now, Dan. What's one piece of advice that you would give? I mean, we've given a lot of advice to kind of first-year college students, but what's one bit of advice that you'd give yourself as a first-year college student? That's a wonderful question. I don't, I don't, and I love, I especially love the question because I don't feel that I did college all that well. And it's even better, Ollie, because I've got, one of my daughters is going to be going to college in the fall. And so I really need to think about this. <laughs> what's, a, what's a good, I'm not sure she, she hasn't asked for any advice. So I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I may spend all this time preparing this terrific advice and she may not be interested at all. I think life balance really matters. And, you know, so uh, you should work hard, but, you know, pay attention to everything else and, you know, pay attention to your social life and pay attention to your, you know, your physical health and all the rest. We talked about sleep. This is when college is when students experiment. It's the only time that humans experiment with sleep, and it's really not a, a, a great thing to be doing. So I think balance is really important. And balance really is knowing yourself, choosing environments that support the stuff that you know you're not very good at. So if you're going to college and you've always had a hard time studying, like make some studious friends who are going to make it easy for you to be studious as well. They don't have to be all of your friends, but make sure like you're part of that world too. Like seek out environments and social support that is going to offer support in exactly what you know you're not very good at. Because this is the first time that like for most people that no one's there sort of watching you and got, you know, uh, has your back to make sure that you have that balance. It's all on you now. So try to be smart about it. Dan, I'd love some book recommendations, and this could be education or otherwise, but like, what are some of the books that have been most influential on your thinking or that you think a listeners might like to check out? I get asked this a lot and I'm terrible at it because there's so, there's, it's like asking me my favorite teacher. It was like all of them. And it really was, I mean, the, like, accepting one or two who, you know, I really didn't get along with. I felt like I learned so much from so many of my teachers. I feel the same way about books. I mean, I just... I feel like I always get something from anything that I read. It's very hard for me to pick out one or two. Probably the most influential book in my career is now 35 years old, Memory in the Brain by Larry Squire, which was enormously influential on me as a graduate student. And I read and reread and reread, but I wouldn't recommend that people go out and read a 35-year-old neuropsychology book at this point. Larry himself is, I'm sure, written something, you know, more up to date. So, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm a disappointment on, on this one. I'm, I'm, I apologize. That's okay, Dan. Oh, you've given us one interesting one uh, to check out there as well. Dan Willingham, thank you so much for your time on the ERRR podcast today. Like, 
In terms of the genesis for your book, I couldn't agree more. There's like this massive transition of student responsibility and the necessity of self-regulation. I mean, it occurs as students move throughout school, but it's also there is a bit of a, a jump as they move into university or college. And I think your book is one that's absolutely needed. In your characteristic style, you know, you share the research evidence in a really, really digestible and memorable and actionable way. And I think that you've you've highlighted that in today's discussion as well. I would have loved to have three hours to talk with you. You know, there were sections of your book, like, you know, how to read difficult books. There was much more in reorganizing notes. And there was a section on studying for exams. How do you know when you're ready for exams? You had chapters on procrastination, managing anxiety and and everything. And I can't think of a better book that would be a a good gift uh, to give a student who's going into university. So, you know, you offered some advice to your, your daughter. I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering how willing she's going to be to read her father's book about preparing for college. It's an interesting one. Uh, but, I, you know, if I've got any sway, I'd really encourage her to do so. And I would encourage uh, lots of other people to ex- explore this book as well. I mean, I'm doing my PhD in the area of self-regulated learning and there was still so much that I was able to get uh, from your book. So thanks for that, Dan. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. And uh, yeah, I look forward to more of your work in future. Real pleasure. Thank you so much, Ollie. Hey, all, it's Ollie again. One more thing before you take off, and that is Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. Would you enjoy a short email every Friday that provides a little fun, a little mental stimulation before the weekend ahead? Well, my weekly free newsletter is super short. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel, and it's basically a half page every Friday that shares all the coolest ideas and teaching tips that I've come across that week. It's kind of like my diary of teaching and learning that you can get free access to. I often look to recent papers that have come out, tweets and Twitter threads, important reports, new books, blog articles, and even other important podcasts that have been sent to me by leaders in education, including many guests from this show and that I've discovered from scouring the internet. I filter these ideas and resources so that you don't have to, and I only pass on the very best ones to you. So if that sounds like fun, if you'd like a little bit of goodness before you head off each weekend in a concise, quick to read format, just go to ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe to get teacher Ollie's takeaways. Stop what you're doing and sign up before you forget. That's ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.